0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
2: Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity on heritageradionetwork.org. I am your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm coming to you live in the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. My guest today is Chef Lucas Sin. He is the chef of Junza Kitchen, a new generation restaurant in New Haven and New York City, serving Northern Chinese bings and noodle bowls that seeks to update the narrative on the modern Chinese everyday food experience in the United States. Welcome to the show, Lucas.
3: Thanks for having me. Or do you prefer chef? Uh, no, Lucas. Lucas no, chef Definitely Sin. Lucas. Definitely Lucas. Yeah, okay. I'm too young for that.
2: I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Although your profession or your experience at this point yeah. certainly warrants it.
3: Oh, no, 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 no. Too kind of you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, um, regardless, I'm very happy you're here, mm-hmm. and you are, in fact, a chef.
3: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a compliment. <laughs>
2: it's a fact.
3: <laughs> it, it takes a while to get used to, to be honest.
2: How long no, have surprising. you? How long has Jinza been open?
3: Uh, Jinza's been open for almost three years. Almost okay. three years. Um, but I've been cooking since I was 16 or so, I think, safe to say.
2: Um, You have a very interesting story about your first restaurant. Yeah. Your you opened your first restaurant in Hong Kong, which is where you grew up. Yes, I yes, did. Yes. Um, so you opened your first restaurant at the age of 16 in an abandoned newspaper factory. Right. That's crazy sounding. Pretty nuts. Is it as nuts Pretty as it sounds?
3: Uh, it was a lot of fun, I remember, <laughs> uh, mostly.
2: It's like but, most 16-year-olds are playing video games, and you're like, there's an abandoned newspaper well, factory. I'll open a restaurant.
3: <laughs> when I was uh, when we got to building this restaurant... Um, it wasn't just me; it was me and my friends also. Um, the it was just the last summer um, we went to an international school in Hong Kong, so everybody was destined for college elsewhere. Um, most of us in the U.S. or in the U.K. or whatnot. And it got to a point where people were asking, "What, like, what are you going to do with this last summer in Hong Kong?" Um, and then my father told me that. Or my father asked, "Oh, Lucas, you like to cook, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I guess I like to cook." Um, and then he said, why don't we just try opening a restaurant? Let's just do this, this summer. And so uh, we knew somebody who knew somebody in this newspaper factory. And uh, he had a wine cellar and a semi-professional kitchen um, next to his um, little karaoke studio inside of the uh, abandoned newspaper factory. And he said, hey, this space is yours, you, you have to pay me this amount of money, like, rent it out, um, but you can cook in this kitchen and serve people. So we um, told a bunch of our teachers about it, we told a bunch of our friends about it, and then they would meet in a certain place in Hong Kong. We'd send a shuttle bus, they'd get on the bus, the bus would come to the factory, they'd unload themselves, and they'd sit down in this wine cellar, and then we'd serve them like 13 courses. Um, we used to call it Hong Kong cuisine. The restaurant was called Bo um tie, which means a uh, clay pot kid. Um, named after the first dish I ever learned how to make clay it, pot, clay pot kid? rice. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know how you know how some um you know like hip hop artists have like you know, they like Christian themselves with rap names. Yeah. Some chefs, you know, Curious Cook or, or, or you know, Lucky Peach. Okay, These, so it was, your, it was
2: your chef-rapper name.
3: It was, like, you're 16 years old. So you're the clay pot kid. Fair enough. Bo zai, as in, like, bo zai fan. Clay uh-huh. pot rice. That's, that's a, um, yeah, so, and that was our, our signature dish, actually. Clay pot rice. Pork belly. A little bit of taro. Um, Chinese sausage. Chinese liver sausage. It was delicious
2: it sounds great I love that yes, your um, dad was the one who was like the instigator yeah. behind all this he,
3: he um, my father's not a uh, chef but he in my opinion is the best cook like on earth um, every morning we would wake up and he would go to the fridge and he would like put a, one single pot together of you know everything that was in the fridge like chicken and vermicelli and he would like make a stock and all these things and it always be absolutely beautiful um, and he always joked that um, when I mean when we get to a certain age or rather when he gets to a certain age we should open a restaurant together mm. called which in Cantonese is an army of brothers so it's the older brother and the younger brother Aww. he and I would like run this little like spot together yeah. so he's always wanted to be sort of a chef I so he was so like a little somewhere. bit
2: yeah. living vicariously through sort you, of, you I, or just I, like I encouraging so. you yeah. to pursue his Yeah. but he's just so hygiene. good at
3: his real life job that I don't think he, what's his real life we, job um, he's in tech probably okay my grandmother wants to cook, though. Um, my grandmother, um, not, not in the sense of, you know, she, she wasn't sort of a chef that people um, think of as a mm-hmm. chef today in the U.S. especially. She was a cook because that's what she needed to do. Um, she cooked for the people um, who served food to um, people at a mahjong parlor. Hmm. So she would make staff meal, in effect. And that was like her whole life and her whole career. And early on, um, when I was in Hong Kong, my grandmother would tell me, You can do anything. And you're like, Lucas, go ahead, be good at school and do whatever you'd like, but please don't become a cook.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was wondering about that. You know, it, it surprised me that you said your father was the one who was motivating you to become a chef or open a restaurant at such a young age. Cause You know, you often hear about parents, like Chinese Mm -hmm. parents or different, you know, cultures like that um, encourage their kids to go off and move to the United States and then become like a doctor or a lawyer. But I love that your dad was encouraging you to like follow your your passion
3: there. He taught me how to make a lot of the things. He he, like taught me a lot of the principles of how to behave in the kitchen, how to think about food. So I think he's absolutely supportive in that sense.
2: So he was really the the cook in your family growing up?
3: Everyone in my sort of um, family cooks quite a bit. Mm. My sister uh, is a great baker. Um, my mother hated cooking but then she got very, very good at it. she like <laughs> cook for us all the time. Um, and she'd like invent dishes and she was the first person to teach me the important principle of delicious plus delicious equals delicious. <laughs> is that a theorem? You know, it, it is. Uh, <laughs> it's, to be honest, it, um, half the time it's probably not true um, but when it is true it's like extra true. Like, um, a good example is uh, ketchup fried rice. Oh. You know, it just, like, there's no recipe book that says you should, you should put this liquidy ketchup sugary substance in your fried rice. But if this is good and that's good and you match it together, it gets really good.
2: Yeah, it's like taking like, a neutral base and yeah. adding something kind of right. like sugary and yeah. salty. It's I,
3: a, I mean, it's an important principle. And this, that's something that I like to teach a lot of the cooks um, at Junza when we make staff lunch is you should be able to open a fridge and see what you have available and be able to make something good out of it. And that practice of making staff lunch is very much like my mother's practice of making food for her kids when they come back from school.
2: It sounds like the way that your father yeah. cooked too. I mean, the way you right, described right, right. it, like every day he just created a like a delicious, yeah. 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 Like one pot dish out of everything that was kind of like sitting around or leftover. Yeah.
3: And that. Probably informed a lot of the way I started cooking as well. I mean, if you're 16 years old, you know, barely have any um, professional kitchen experience, and you're opening a restaurant, um, you're gonna be a little reckless about your menu designer, you know, your cooking for sure. Yeah. Um, you're just slamming things together and hoping things work and then refining them from there, and there's a lot of trial and error. But I think that sort of like pop up y recklessness really carried me through the early sort of years of my cooking. Um, when I went to school, Um, here in the U.S., uh, I ran a little pop-up, or a series of restaurants rather, at my dorm as well. So in my basement, um, we could seat maybe like 30 people, and five of them would be on a ping-pong table. (laughs) And then we had this like little electrical stove and this stuff, and then we um, would run restaurants every weekend, sort of like, you know, sort of illegally in... uh, (laughs) We got a call from the um, uh, New Haven Health Department once that said, so on this news uh, to the university, uh, um, there's this kid, Lucas Sin, and he's in the center. He's in the centerfold, and he's cooking for 200 people every weekend. (laughs) Uh you talk about this, um but yeah, so that so always it's always about me and my friends, just me teaching other people how to hold three plates at once, teaching people how to talk about wine, teaching people how to like talk about tea if they don't want to talk about wine, to like bring some sort of like community of making food to wherever we were. I think that's a lot of the start of how we did this,
2: yes, but I also sort of <laughs> get the impression that something that interests you about food is like the illicit quality of like <laughs> opening a restaurant in like a really unconventional
3: I suppose, space. I suppose so yeah
2: space like you clearly haven't pursued yeah. it in like a linear way at all where you were like okay I'm gonna go to yeah. cooking school I'm gonna right, go right, right. to you know open a restaurant like you were like how can I do like yeah. the weirdest most like unconventional
3: <laughs> thing perhaps no it's just given the <laughs> confines of the given the circumstances you know you're, you're suddenly before you know it, you're going to a liberal arts school in, uh, in, in the US and you kind of want to cook. Yeah. So you tell one of your friends, hey, you know, I used to like, run this place in Hong Kong when I was a kid, um, you know, a couple months ago. Right, right. When I was a <laughs> yeah. kid, last year. <laughs> yeah, <like> last year. I <laughs> mean, um, they said, oh, you like, if, if you've done it before, like, well, let's just do it now. Like, let's do it right now. And um, the first pop-up that we did um, under Why Pop-Up, which is what we called the pop-up organization, was uh, Instant Noodles. So you could bring your own instant noodles, your favorite brand, and I would make three broths. We'd sous vide a bunch of chicken. So it was we,
2: DIY of, yeah, noodles? Yeah, you would
3: like bring your noodles and we would like have the Or broth BYO's. And, I yeah, BYO, yeah. yeah BYO noodles. Um, <laughs> or we could supply them to you and then with like five bucks a pop, we like build your own bowls kind of, which in a weird way is what we do at Janzhou, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> They're not instant noodles, but... Um, of course. Yeah.
2: But you're no uh, but, longer living in a dorm or yeah, operating out yeah. of a dorm.
3: We we started with this instant noodle thing, and then we just started doing um, you know, like tasting menus um, or cutsy things. We did uh, for a semester. We did menus like the five stages of a relationship, and each of the stages was a course. You know, like the type the stuff a sophomore would do in college. Yeah, before. but it,
2: again, like it sort of goes back to like <laughs> you're so conceptual, conceptual about uh-huh. the way you. Plan your restaurants and see I them like so. there's something that's just really challenging I think that maybe appeals to you like you don't think about like you think about food and mm-hmm. like how you can connect it to like a larger concept that you're working with
3: I suppose I think so a lot of um, people want me to a lot, a lot of people want me to have thought more than I did about the things that I've done um, I think uh, one th- surprising thing is because I didn't go to culinary school, a lot of people um, question uh, how somebody with a degree in cognitive science um, would end up in running kitchens at this age. Yeah. Um, and I don't have a good answer for it. You mm-hmm. know, um, I wish there was some wonderful way to tie in neuroscience and Wittgenstein or whatever we were reading into the food that we make today. But um, the fact of the matter is... Uh, just given the circumstance that we find ourselves in, I think this is the thing that makes the most sense to do. Um, I can't see the team of Junzi doing anything except for opening sort of contemporary Chinese restaurants. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine cooking food that isn't the food that we cook. There's a the, the, sort of the energy sometimes feels necessary.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But it's you know not surprising at all to hear that you were studying cognitive science at Yale. Oh, thank you. While you were creating, like, high-level conceptual pop-up restaurants like on the weekend yeah. in your spare right, time. Right, right. I mean, there's clearly yeah. like a connection. Pro-
3: probably. We'll leave, probably. It, we can leave it up to like a historian to like draw those one day.
2: Fair enough. Yeah. Um, what made you want to leave Hong Kong and come to the United States in the first place?
3: Um, that's what everyone did. Um, all okay. the good schools were in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the U.K. Um, most of us knew what we wanted to study um, or knew where we wanted to study, so um, I just ended up in New Haven, Connecticut.
2: Well, that seems like a good place to land.
3: Uh, it, yeah, it was It was a wonderful place to land. I was,
2: think. was it... I mean, I don't know how you pictured it before you arrived in New Haven, <laughs> Connecticut, coming from Hong Kong, but right. was it similar to what you expected? Was it totally different than what you would have expected?
3: Uh, there were a lot of different things. The first... Um, the first meal we had when uh, my father brought me to uh, school freshman year, uh, we went to a Chinese restaurant. And this restaurant is now my favorite restaurant in New Haven, probably. Mm-hmm. But the first time we went, I was so disappointed. I was like, I can't believe I left Hong Kong for this. Yeah, I can't believe I'm never going to. The first time I cried, actually, freshman year was on the phone when my dad told me that my favorite fishball noodle restaurant in Hong Kong was closed forever. Oh, like,
2: ah, you'll never ah, go there again. Yeah, yeah. and then
3: meanwhile, um, the Constellation prize is going downstairs to this place, that, the, the first restaurant that I went to after we went to New Haven, and it was just like, oh, this is just not what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But because it was because Americanized it wasn't, it wasn't Chinese food. Sort of, yeah. But what I realized at this American Chinese restaurant is that we, we used to go every weekend and every time we were hungry, we just go downstairs, go to this restaurant, and we became regulars at this restaurant. You know, we met the owners and knew the owners and they knew who we were and they knew our orders. Just going over and over and over again and mining through the menu to figure out how to, you know, game the system sort mm-hmm. of to see what's the, what the good stuff is to figure out that you can add. Minced pork to the seafood chow fun, mm. and like really elevating the experience. You know, and Cognitive the
2: science? No,
3: maybe it is. <laughs> it just feels. So, I mean, you're like we're if just I switch this ingredient with, with this ingredient, ingredient and,
2: then, yeah. and now I have like a new
3: dish. It absolutely, like um, yeah, that's one of my favorite restaurants in the world now, and I miss it a lot.
2: I mean, I think that's so funny that it became eventually your favorite restaurant. And is it just because you think you developed, like, new feelings of comfort for it because it was just the place that was there that you went to yeah. over and over again?
3: I think it's both of those things. Like, it
2: became this, like, it filled a, a new role for Absolutely. you. Like, you couldn't yeah. go to your favorite fishball yeah. place, so instead... It's habit-forming, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, it just sort of yeah. became this addictive. This is now the place to
3: go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every night you went out, you would have to end up with the same um, seafood chaffer and with minced pork.
2: So when did you realize you were not going to become a cognitive scientist, and in fact, this like crazy hobby that you were pursuing on the weekend was in fact leading to a career?
3: Um, it got to a point when uh, you realize there's nothing else for you to do except for cook. Mm. It just doesn't. It just doesn't really feel right to do anything except for cook. Um, when I was in college, uh, I, I got more serious about. Cooking, because on top of this sort of side project, why I pop up on the weekends? I spent all my winters and my summers cooking in proper restaurants, um, primarily in Japan. The first year, I tasked myself with tr- learning Japanese, so um, learning Japanese in Japan, spent all summer um, cooking exclusively with like Japanese grandmas, everybody else's host families mother and grandmother, I would, like, go to their, you know, uh, place and, like, cook with them and learn the food. Um, The second summer, I spent it backpacking. Um, I just had my knives, a couple of bandanas, and started in Tokyo, worked a couple of weeks in Tokyo, and then just bounced around and hit every major city all the way down to Nagasaki and tried to figure out what food I was most excited about in Japan. Um, Of course, at that point, the theory is Japanese food is the best food in the world, so you go to the place that has the best food in the world to learn cuisine Um, and so I ended up working at a restaurant called Kikunoi Honte in Kyoto and with the chef there, murat Hatsang, he um, had this special visa for um, a foreign chef to learn um, very traditional kaiseki, high-end Japanese cuisine with him and so this is sort of like a world's 50 best you know, three star Michelin place Um, and the hardest I've ever worked in my whole life was probably and Kikunoi and that was the last summer. I stumbled upon that restaurant the second summer and the last summer. said, I'm going to spend my summer here and learn from this guy. Um, and it was hard work and learning his Japanese cuisine. But towards the end of my stay there, um, I sat down with Murata-san and asked him you know, how he got into cooking. Um, the restaurant was built by his father. but He kind of rebelled and told himself, I'm going to learn the best food in the world, which back in the day was French food. Right. So he went to France cooking France for about a couple months and he realized why, like, French food is great but why don't I think more about the food that you know, I grew up with that's mm-hmm. in my blood and so he flew back to Japan and started running the restaurant with his father mm. and that's the moment when I kind of realized oh, like, here I am in Japan <laughs> learning the best food in the world um, perhaps I should begin thinking about Chinese food as well and so that's when I started making staff meal for a lot of the staff um, and uh, we did we had to do side-by-side comparisons of Japanese mapo tofu and then Chinese mapo tofu, or a Japanese gyoza and then Chinese dumpling. Right. And then, then I found that there were sort of threads of uh, narrative that you could weave together um, just by cooking Chinese food and telling people about it. Even in the Japanese kitchen, they're making the highest level of Japanese food. So I um, came back um, from Japan that summer and thought to myself, perhaps perhaps I should get going on this Chinese food thing. <laughs> um, and that's when I met everybody else who was on the team for Z and we started building this concept and said, this is, this is probably the way to go. This is what we have to do right now and you better get going.
2: How much of that motivation, whether it was you know, conscious or not at the time, came from you just like maybe really missing the food you grew up with?
3: Some of it. Probably some of it. Um, what's curious is... Um, the food we serve at Jinza is northern Chinese food, um, which is the food that I cook a lot of these days. Um, but I'm from the south, so I had to learn a lot of this food, um, and which, is, which has been a helpful sort of journey for me, too, because it's sort of like I have half of my foot in the door. I know Chinese food. I know some of the principles and how the physics of wok cooking, for example, but I don't know these specific flavors and these specific ingredients. So um, from there, I think I've been able to see from a perspective where a lot of our um, customers and you know, a lot of our guests are, are too. They kind of know Chinese food, but they don't know this type of Chinese food. Um, so it, yeah, it's been a learning process.
2: Because you like the challenge. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah
3: <laughs> it's, it's certainly difficult. It's certainly difficult. And it's really worth, um, it's worth talking about. I think it's worth thinking about at a larger scale.
2: Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and then we are going to talk about it more. Awesome. So stay tuned. We're here with Lucas Sin from Jinza Kitchen and we're going to hear from our sponsor and then we'll be back.
1: Hey, hey. Hey.
0: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Food Without Borders on heritageradionetwork.org. I am your host, Sari Kamen, and I am in the studio with Chef Lucas Sin of Junza Kitchen. Hey, Lucas.
3: What's up?
2: Welcome back. (laughs) Um, So tell us about the mission of Junza Kitchen.
3: There's the... um
1: me, this is
3: the rehearsed answer, and then there's the answer I think um, that's kind of like Give deep us inside back. of. Um, uh, well, broadly speaking, I think uh, a lot of Junzi's mission is about translating. It's a, it's a process of translating um, Chinese food for an American palate mm-hmm. in a sort of um, updated and uh, exciting way um, that is honest to um, what China is like in China, but also, more importantly, honest to. Um, the team of the people who make the food and the people who run this restaurant um, broadly speaking, I think um, there chinese food there uh, there 's a lot of Chinese food in the u s yeah everybody loves eating Chinese food. It's for the amount of cultural heritage and years of culinary development that China has. Um, not a lot of it has made its way over to the U.S. There's not a lot of nuance. There's not a lot of nuance. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, uh, how it came about, right? Um, there is no headquarters in the middle of America where someone says, this is the orange chicken recipe. This is what <laughs> chow mein is going to be like. But every single... American Chinese restaurant that you go to feels pretty much exactly the same, give or take, right? Right. A lot of it is really similar.
2: Isn't that just a product of immigration that happened, like yeah, in the late eighteen hundreds? It's
3: an immigration, so it's a it's an outward force that comes into the U.S., but it's also the network that's developed within the U.S. Um, of these immigrants. There's this sort of, like, diasporic network where people share recipes with first sister, cousin, and then this other sort of person that came into town that's opening a Chinese
2: restaurant. Yeah, it's like a sub-Chinese food culture. And and
3: it's so wonderful. (laughs) Um, uh, Sort of, it's like Chinese food has grown collectively as a cuisine in the U.S., but without sort of a brand or Mm -hmm. um, a unified story because um, unlike... uh, Mexican food, for example, where you do have some uh, more brand representation in the market space, so to speak, then you have better control over different types of uh, cuisine that are like a little bit more nuance that you can bring to the board. Um, So I think uh, we were just, um, I just cooked for um, Cecilia Chang, who's the queen of Chinese food, and her son Philip, who is the founder of PF Chang's. P.F. Chang's right. obviously, it's like you know, the yeah. the Chinese food brand. Yeah. So it's Philip, Philip's P.F. Chang, and then it's Cecilia's, or rather, it's Philip's P.F. Chang, and it's his mother's old sous chef's new restaurant, Panda Inn, that became Panda Express. Oh wow! And so all of Chinese food comes sums to Cecilia and her restaurant, the Mandarin in San Francisco, that opened in the sixties, and uh, that's most of what. The, the, that's most of the companies that sort of like govern what Chinese food is. At They're scale. the brand headquarters. Like, that's the brand headquarters. <laughs> um, and they were built, you know, uh, 30, 40 years ago. And now there hasn't been really an update since then. And so I think a lot of our work at Gen Z is to corral the energy of uh, artists and designers, um, architects, um, people in business development and everywhere um, around a new Chinese food brand and a new Chinese food story.
2: So, when you were describing mm-hmm. the typical Chin- American Chinese food mm-hmm, mm-hmm. menu, you you said, like, oh, I love it. But yeah. it also seems like, like you're working against that and you're trying mm-hmm. to change the narrative. So, what's the tension that exists? Mm-hmm. Like, it's the same right. thing, I guess, that happened with you eventually embracing right, right. the restaurant uh-huh. in uh-huh. New Haven. Yeah. Like, how do you like decipher that relationship you have where you're like fighting against something but you also kind of
3: love it. I see it less of um, pushing against uh, older narrative um, and more about adding new color Mm, um, to it. Um, I think uh, southern Chinese food I mean, we can't even call, it's easy, the the easy narrative you hear a lot is that American Chinese food really is just southern Chinese food or Hunanese food. Um, It's a little sweet and sour, it's a tiny bit spicy, there's a lot of light soy sauce, It's a lot of cornstarch. But that's not totally true. Um, It's evolved in and of itself. Um, And so American Chinese food has become its own. Category of Chinese food, the way we now see a lot of Sichuan restaurants. Sichuan restaurants are their own category of Chinese food. I think we're trying to add um, to the mix a new category of Chinese food, which is kind of like accessible um, contemporary Chinese food that you might be able to get in northern China. A lot of our flavors are sourced from the northeast, but I think a lot of the way we present the food is uh, a little more, it's a little bigger than just the northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, by the Northeast, I mean a lot of braises with soybean paste, um, a lot of soy use. Um, no rice. That's a big part of it. Rice was only grown in the Northeast, basically, after the Cultural Revolution. There's no
2: rice at your restaurant?
3: Uh, at our restaurant, no. Wow. Yeah. I
2: don't yeah. think I've ever been to a Chinese restaurant. A Chinese restaurant, restaurant without either. rice. Yeah.
3: But if you think about it, probably about 50% of the Chinese population didn't grow up with rice as the primary carbohydrate Hmm. because it's all wheat, it's all flour. So it was noodles. So noodles, um, bings also. Bings being uh, sort of like Chinese flatbread type of thing. Mm -hmm. Ours is unleavened, so it doesn't have yeast in it. But it's just flour and water. Those are the two ingredients. There's no salt, there's no sugar. Um, Noodles are the same thing. Um, If you wanted to take a trip back to ancient China and you looked at the first Chinese dictionary ever written, you would look up the definition for bing and it would say bing, shi, ye bing is food. Mm. The reason is flour and water, you would have a dough. Um, You could take that dough, if you rolled it thin, you would get these bings, right? You would get these um, uh, wrap type of things. If you shaved that dough into water, that's your noodle. If you rolled it flat and put meat in the middle, that's dumpling. If you put something sweet in the middle, it could become something like dim sum. And so that really was the search for the uh, the main food of China for a very, very long time rice compared to wheat is a lot more difficult to grow. It requires not only a village, but probably a couple of them. Mm-hmm. So um, I think telling people that, oh, this is a Chinese restaurant, but we don't serve rice, mostly just flour and water, is a good starting point to start the conversation to say, a lot of the Chinese food that you know is just the tip of the iceberg. And yeah. There's a lot more that we're trying to bring.
2: Um, okay, so two questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, are people generally how do they react when they find out there's no rice? And do they uh-huh. feel, like, excited or receptive? Or are they, like, where's the rice? Um, and then I guess my second question of that, too, is Genza is fast casual. Mm-hmm. So is that... Um, I mean, is that a choice to create a place that can be, you know, more accessible and eventually you can open more and more places so it, mm-hmm. it could... I mean, I don't know. Compete's not the right word, but um, it could become more... Ubiquitous like a Panda Express, ultimately, so you uh-huh, could uh-huh. sort of like further the education that right. comes from being able yeah. to go to a place Absolutely. that's fast casual.
3: Um, to the first question um, Sorry, I threw two at you. No, at the no, same no. The, the first about, <laughs> about um, whether people are surprised that we don't serve rights. Um, what's weird is a lot of people who come to Jinza don't think it's a Chinese restaurant, so they don't have that expectation Even that there should be rice. I
2: mean, do they realize it once they have completed their meal, or they um, never know?
3: A lot of people, in the, especially in the beginning, didn't know. They would mm. just come and eat, and uh, or, or they would come and, oh, this looks like a Chinese fast casual place. Mm-hmm. So just get whatever this is. And they wouldn't come to th- think of them, think, oh, it's rice. Um, like, where's the rice? Right. Uh, and we actually get a lot of people who look at the um, way we've um, designed and decorated the restaurant. Like, oh, like, nice little Japanese place. You know, like, you get a lot of that oh, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so to the second question, though, um, I think fast casual absolutely is a um, careful choice on our part. Um, the way we think about it or the way I like to think about it is um, in a lot of uh, innovation in the food space, um, you can start with either the form or the content so the structure of the content. And I think we've chosen first to try to change people's expectations and innovate in the content, to change the flavors that people are used to um, in the sort of their like daily diet and their daily routines. Other salads and their tacos and, their, um, and the grain bowls and that sort of thing. Um, but for the form, we kind of um, try to keep it more accessible and similar to what people are used to so people know how to order at the restaurant so people know what to expect when they walk in that they can customize that they can um, get chicken today and get tofu the next day um, and that way if we can bring the Chinese cuisine to a level of understanding that p- people wouldn't have to question themselves too much before they walk into the Chinese restaurant you don't
2: restaurant. want to make it too challenging Yeah,
3: you want like you don't want somebody to walk in before they walk into the Jinzi. People shouldn't have to tell themselves, I am about to have an ethnic experience. Or rather, an authentic experience. Like they have to give themselves a pep right. talk or
2: something? They, they
3: have to like, <laughs> give themselves a pat on the back saying, you know, I went all the way out oh, to right, flushing right. and now I'm eating on the styrofoam plate. Right. Like I did this. Like we're going to go look for the best Chinese food. This is, hey, this place is on the corner. Serve food. Um, the noodles are great. Maybe just have some of these. The bings are good. Um, I'll come back tomorrow. And a couple of weeks later, like, wait, wait a second. Like, what type of food is this? Oh, it's Chinese. <laughs> oh, cool. It's just Chinese. It's right. So like, the
2: Chinese. authenticity is sort of, like, yeah. intrinsic to the experience, but you don't have to go out of your way to Absolutely. seek it.
3: Yeah. I think that's, um, and as much as I wish that weren't the case, I think, that's a huge barrier of entry for a lot of um, contemporary restaurants. I think that, that's really smart. They have to, like, yeah, it sucks that you have to, let's say, as a um, Laotian restaurant, that you have to convince somebody that, this is worth trying right. before you walk in the door. Um, and it's crazy because there are, you know, what is it, 45, 46,000 Chinese restaurants? Um, I think that number we got from mining Yelp <laughs> to see how many restaurants like, identify as Chinese. It's like 45, 46,000 Chinese restaurants. But still, um, most people will have to convince themselves that, okay, cool, Chinese restaurant is what I want today, and then I'm going to go get it. But yeah. that's not the case for, you know, like a salad bowl or something.
2: Yeah, I mean, I saw something online. There was one story that com- or basically, not compared, but it it suggested that Denza uh, Kitchen could be like the Chinese version of a sweet, sweet green. green yeah. And I wondered if you found huh. that, like, how, if that was a compliment or you found that offensive. I, no, I
3: absolutely think so. Um, yeah, I think um, sweet green speaks to a lot of um, our mission of accessibility mm-hmm. and um, uh, making things easy for people, but delivering a high quality product uh, in uh, sort of a comfortable space. I think um, Sweet Green, uh, just name one of them, is one of the uh, key sort of innovators in this space. What's funny is um, uh, the CEO of Sweet Green, uh, well, this piece came out in Vogue, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a call at the restaurant and said, Hey, uh, so uh, I uh, read that you. Um, might be the Chinese sweet green. We should talk and was, sorry, who is this other CEO of sweet green? <laughs> okay, I got it. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> like <talk>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <that's right. laughs> um, Yeah, but it's. I think that I really like that article because um, it really spoke to the, the things that we we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you're like, okay, this is. Yeah, this in the fast casual sense, yeah, for sure.
2: Right, right. Um, like David Chang has done a lot to yeah. like maybe change the conversation right, right, about right. what Chinese food is, or mm-hmm. places like Mission Chinese. But you know, mm-hmm. if you don't live in New York and you can't afford a certain type of dining experience, and it's just not accessible to Absolutely. you.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the silly things that we like to do at Genza, though is we start with a fast casual, but we actually like to build upwards as well um, to uh, formats that are a little bit more refined. Um, I have a little bit of a pet project we call Chef's Table. Um, so once a month, um, we do a tasting menu at the fast casual restaurant during fast casual business hours. Mm-hmm. And we set the table, people are eating with forks and knives or chopsticks and nice porcelain plates and things. Um, but it's usually a collaboration either with another chef or another culture. And we look at how Chinese food will interact with said chef, with said culture. So recently we did a pretty interesting uh, Chinese-Dominican dinner that was really fun. We were looking at uh, how Chinese populations or Chinese cooks were cooking for uh, Dominican populations uh, in the DR, Mm. in Washington Heights. And um, the the little bit of uh, conversation that is in China itself. Um, we were like comparing and contrasting the techniques and the ingredients and um, we found some pretty cool dishes um, that you know, speak to Chinese Dominican food. Nobody who came to the dinner thought there would be anything interesting about Chinese Dominican food. But I think with a sort of like persistent and thoughtful approach, you always end up with some sort of narrative and you find something that's really cool that could bring those cultures together. So for these dinners um, at Chef's Table, um, with, you know it's a type of place with wine pairing and coarsed food and such. I think that's a really good way for us to start examining other cultures and the way other people cook through the lens of Chinese food.
2: Cognitive science. <laughs> <Certainly>. <laughs>
3: um,
2: well, that's a great segue to tell us if there's anything like new in the works mm-hmm. and also where we can find your restaurants and stay in touch and keep tabs on, on Jinza and whatever else is happening with you.
3: Absolutely. Um, we have two restaurants uh, in New York City, um, one in New Haven, Uh, The ones in New York City, the first is on 113 and Broadway by Columbia University. And the second is by NYU at 170 Bleecker and Bleecker and Sullivan. Um, At both locations, uh, we have a regular menu of bangs and noodles. And then at night, uh, we run an after hours program, which is late night. You know, we throw the kind of like healthy, balanced thing at the door and we do fried chicken and cocktails and that sort of thing.
2: Is that more of like a reservation kind of thing?
3: Uh, no, the after hours is um, come as you come before you go out. Come, come as you are. Come, come as you are. Okay. Um, and for chef's table, um, currently it's semi-secret. Can't
1: believe I <laughs> <laughs> told everybody. <laughs> it.
3: Um, but uh, if you follow us on Instagram and send us a DM, uh, Jens's kitchen or me personally, Lucas Totsin, um, I can get you a seat.
2: So slip into Lucas's DMs. Yes, is what he's please. saying.
3: Okay.
2: (laughs) Um, Chef Lucas Sin, thank you so much for coming on Food Without Borders. It was really interesting and cool to to hear about what you're working on and your journey, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you so much. Um, Go check out Junzi Kitchen in either location and maybe slip them a DM if you're feeling saucy. Please. (laughs) Um, And come back next week to hear more on Food Without Borders, Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org, as well as iTunes, uh, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio. See you next week.
3: Cheers.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.